Hey mamas, have you ever looked at the back of your prenatal vitamin and wondered if you were truly getting everything you need? I know I didn't when I was pregnant. Well today, I want to share with you the number one prenatal I suggest to all my doula clients, friends, family, and you, women of strength. It's by a company called Needed. I honestly don't think I was the only one that didn't really understand just how important certain nutrients were for myself or my growing baby. And that is why I love Needed. They have gone above and beyond to create solid products, not only that have the key nutrients, but will also have the optimal amount. Don't be overwhelmed picking a prenatal. Check out all of Needed's products, including their prenatals, pre-probiotics, immune support, and more at thisisneeded.com. Enjoy 20% off by using code VBAC20. Hello, hello. Welcome to the VBAC link. This is Megan. And you guys, we have an amazing, amazing, amazing episode for you today. This episode's actually been kind of a long time coming, actually. We have our friend, Hensi Goer, and she is just a wealth of knowledge. You're going to absolutely like pick this episode apart. I know you're actually probably going to want a notebook. So if you're one of the listeners that goes on walks or driving, you might want to press pause or listen to it and come back with a notebook because I know you're going to want to write these stats down. We're talking about uterine scar giveaway today, you guys. And I know that this is something huge. All of our listeners and every single one of our listeners that has had a VBAC is aware of uterine scar separation, right? And so this is going to be a really great episode filled with wonderful evidence and all the things for you. So buckle up. It's going to be amazing. But of course, we have a review of the week. So I'm going to quickly share that with you. And this review today is actually on our How to VBAC Ultimate Parents course. And it says, this is from Rosie. It says, as someone who had an unplanned cesarean myself, and as a doula, I really appreciated how balanced this course is. There's no shaming. There's no bias. It's just the facts. So thank you, Rosie. I'm so glad that you are enjoying the course or have enjoyed the course. And if you didn't know, we do have a How to VBAC parents course and a doula course for all of you birth workers out there who want to learn how to support your VBAC clients. We have this course. You can check it out at thevbacklink.com. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Okay, Ms. Hensi, I am so honored to have you on the show today. I mean, really, it seems like we've been talking for months. I mean, I really think it's like the beginning of the year, right? Something around there. Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's been so long. And just for anyone out there who wants to know a little bit more about Hansi and why we are having her on the show today, um, she actually started out as a Lamaze teacher and a doula. And her life's work soon became analyzing and synthesizing the obstetric research in order to give pregnant women, birthing people, and birth professionals access to what continues to be optimal care in childbirth. And just that right there, that little bit right there, I'm telling you guys, like, 
it really is her life's work. If you go, if you Google her name, you're going to find a ton of research. She's an author of four books, four books, you guys, Labor Pain, What is Your Best Strategy, Optimal Care in Childbirth, The Case for a Physiologist, <laughs> Hensi, I can't even say the word, Physiological <laughs> Approach with co-author um, Amy Romano, who is has been, is she on MSN and CNM or has been mentioned? Tell oh, me about she, that. She's a nurse midwife. Those That's master of oh, nurse midwife. I'm thinking CNN is my, in my head. MSN. So what is that? It's a master of something. I something. don't know what that degree is. It's, but it's at that big. time, yeah, she's a, she's a nurse midwife. She's a CNN, who, who, certified nurse midwife. Yes. Yeah. In my head, I read CNN. Um, it says the think. Um, let's see the Thinking Women's Guide to a Better Birth and Obstetric Myths versus Research Realities. You guys. In addition, she has written numerous blog posts, articles, given lectures around the world, and here she is today on our podcast. I'm so honored. In recognition of her work, she has received, um, among so many others, the a American College of Nurse Midwives Best Book of the Year. Hensi, congratulations on that. Yeah, that was a thrill. That is amazing. Lamaze International President's Award, Don International, Claus, is it Claus and Klaus? Klaus. Klaus. Klaus may, and Kanel. May his memory, may both their memories be a blessing. I know. Seriously, research award on that. Life Achievement Award, Bold Atlanta. And you guys, she's had so many awards. And here she is to talk with you, women of strength, all about one of the biggest topics in VBAC, right? Uterine separation, also known as uterine rupture. And when I started talking with Hensi, I love it. She was like, you know, I don't love to call it uterine rupture, like uterine separation. And I actually have really grown to love that over the last few months that we've been talking. So yeah, let's talk about it. What, what is uterine scar separation, Hensi? What, what is that? Well, before we get started, because I think we're going to be giving a lot of information, yes. um, I want to emphasize that one of the things that took so long is because what we decided to do was that I would do a blog post mm -hmm. that had all of the detailed information in it. And it does. So not to worry. I imagine that with the notes for the podcast, you'll post a link to the blog, the, the blog post, really? which will have detailed numbers in it. So my life's work, and I love the review of your course because it just sits where I sit. My life's work has been wanting to give women and birthing people the ability to make choices, having all complete, accurate information on the pros and cons of their option which is really difficult to get, as you probably it, and your people it, probably it know. Yes. What they choose to do with it is, it's just like, I'm there for the information, no judgment. I'm there to help people who decide they want to plan repeat cesarean. I'm there, mm -hmm. whatever it is, I want people to have the accurate, balanced information to the best of my ability to create a space where they can make the choice that's right for them and their family. Absolutely. I love that so much. And that is really what we are here about at the VBAC Bank is there's no shaming in choosing a repeat cesarean. There's no shaming in choosing an epidural over unmedicated, right? There's no wrong way to birth. But the most important thing to us here at the VBAC Link is that you know the facts, you know the options, and then you choose the best route for you. 
And then the other piece, which is kind of part of my work as well, is to go beyond the information and say, so now you have this information, what can you do with it? Right. So what are the tips, ideas, recommendations that will help you craft a plan that will take you in the direction you want to go? Yeah. And I'm very carefully, this may be one of the more important things I say to your group, and it's not informational. I'm very carefully not saying goal. I think it's really important to distinguish intention from goal. Goal assumes you have to get somewhere, and if you don't get that to that place, then you failed, right? Intention is, this is the direction you want to go in. Mm -hmm. And to have that in mind helps you, first of all, plan the journey in a way that's most likely to succeed in getting there. But yeah. it also helps you have your priorities. So that if things happen along the way, you're able to be flexible to know what's really important to you, to navigate the space, but to understand that, you know, sometimes life has other plans. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if you don't take anything away, I also away for what I say today, please take away that. I think that's yeah. really key. Yeah. You know, as a doula, when we're doing prenatals with our clients, a lot of people are like, oh, can you help me write a birth plan? You know, and I love, I love the idea surrounding birth plans. Like let's have this idea of what we want this birth to, to go or how we want this birth to go. But I like to reference it more as a birth preference. Like here are my preferences and I'm going to label them from like A to D, right? Like most important to less important, but, and like have this idea and this plan, but then also know that there are other options and it's okay if I choose those, or it's okay if my birth goes another route because I have these preferences and we're gonna do everything we can to have them, but we know that it doesn't always pan out that way, right? We know I that. think too is something has gone wrong with our, I, I talk about this in the introduction and, and to my first, you know, to the, to the, my latest book, I think plan has gotten a bad rep. Mm -hmm. So a plan isn't a laundry list or a blueprint. It's more like, are you planning for a career? Well, then you're going to decide what you're going to do to take steps in that direction. Are you planning a vacation? But right. it's not something that has check boxes on it. Right. It's not a list. Right. I think, if I may be so bold, the problem with preference is that at least, I think, especially if you talk about preferences to medical staff, it becomes like, well, I think I'd rather, you know, wear a blue gown, you know, or, or have chocolate yeah. ice cream instead of vanilla. Yeah. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't have the same strength of saying, um, this is my plan. Yeah. And that can be internal to the, to, you know, yeah. the, the woman or the birthing person. But yeah, let's, let's get into the, the meat yeah. of what I want to say today. No, I, I love that message though. I do love that message. And I, I think it'd be really good if we did stop looking at because because when we the reason why like we change plans is because when we if things don't go as planned we failed that's how our minds work mm -hmm. right and it's not how it is but that's how the world has i guess right but i think that's how this i think is what happened when birth plans became a thing in sort of the the the, the medical environment it became a checklist but yeah. when you say i'm planning a vacation you know, if if your plane if your plane flight gets delayed and you miss your connection to the cruise boat, you don't say, "Oh, I failed." I failed, right? Right. 
it's a plan more like, all right, how am I going to get to Costa Rica? <laughs> you know? right. So it's a very different mindset. And I just would like to kind of relieve the audience from the I idea that. that a plan is, is, a, is, um, is too limited. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Okay, so let's talk about when we are planning to have a VBAC, right? When we're when we're going for a trial of labor after cesarean, we uh, have a lot of providers. I'm going to about. plan a VBAC trial. I think language right? is so key to all of this. I know a trial suggests that well, we're trying. We're trying. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the other thing, the other word I would just really like to take out is success. Mm -hmm. There's no six. You either plan a VBAC and have a VBAC or you plan a VBAC and you have a repeat cesarean. Yeah. And though you, like you say, those words are so important. And we talk about VBAC, TOLAC language in our course and talk about how you might hear TOLAC and that actually might be triggering. And it is to a lot of people because you're like, I am not trying to do anything. I am going to have this baby. Like, and I'm, my goal is to, or my plan is to have a vaginal birth after cesarean. And so I don't love trial, right? But we talk about how that is how medical professionals will label it. And so we yeah. try to get comfortable with the, the term TOLAC. So when we hear it in birth, we're not triggered, but knowing in our minds, we are planning to have this feedback. So when we are planning for our VBAC, one of the number one things and focuses on that from a lot of providers is uterine separation. Right. And even there, it's kind of like it's the language that the medical practitioners use, the medical model is rife with the language of failure. So let's even take that. So you hear, what are my odds of the, the even if they don't call it uterine rupture. And the thing is that there's a couple of really big studies, like 50,000, you know, because now we have these big databases. Right. And in one of them, the likelihood of the scar giving way was five out of a thousand. And the other one, it was three out of a thousand. And that's like, whoa, that sounds like something. But what you have to think of is in one of those studies, the odds were 995 out of a thousand that you wouldn't have a problem with your scar. And in the other one, it was 997 out of a thousand that you would not right. have a problem with your scar. Now that's a very different. And then the other thing that people have to understand is everything, even if you do, even if the scar gives way, yes, it's an emergency. And the odds of having something bad happen to your baby, yeah. catastrophic happen to your baby, are again like 997 out of a thousand. That when that problem happens with your scar, 997 times out of a thousand, your baby is going to be just fine. You're going to have an emergency cesarean, right. but your baby's going to be fine. Right. And but usually it, mom's fine too. Yes. Absolutely. So you have to think in, in you know, in, yeah. in, in those terms so that the number is very low. Now, the thing there is it's a general number. Right. It is a general number. And that is something that is something we really, really need to keep in our mind that this is a general number. So I want to drill down and look at some things that affect that number. Yeah. 
So the first one, and and don't worry, I go into details and give all the numbers <laughs> in the blog post. Yes. The first one is what I noticed when I started doing the research for this is that you have two factors that pull in opposite directions. One of them pulls towards having a problem with the scar, and that is the use of induction or augmentation. The other pulls in the direction of not having a problem with the scar, and that's having a prior feedback or feedbacks. Mm -hmm. So before we get to like, well, my last baby was big. Is that going to, you know, does that increase my chance? Because I might have a bigger baby this time, whatever it might be. But those two things are key. And one of them you sort of have control over. Yeah. Yeah. Not so inducing. <laughs> what I can tell you is that it's pretty clear that the stronger the stimulus to the uterus, the more likely you are to have a scar, you know, have this have a problem with the scar. So in other words, what if you are um, particularly the highest risk, if you're induced at all, just with oxytocin, and then if you're induced or, or augmented, and then it really goes up, and this is the, really the key point, if you're induced when the cervix isn't is favorable it? for labor, mm -hmm. right? if you they give you an agent to, to, to help work. soften the cervix and get that right. ready for induction. Right. So it does a great job of softening the cervix, mm -hmm. but it also, um, well, there actually may be a reason why the, 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 the agents that soften the cervix are problematic for the scar because softening the cervix means the cervix is made up of connective tissue. And what, what those agents do is they draw, you know, they kind of cause the cervix to soften by pulling in water, like, you know, like and softening the way you wet a sponge. Okay. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I love that analogy. I've never thought of that. Guess what the uterine scar tissue is made up of? connective tissue <laughs> yeah so that that could be where the problem is but anyway so the more you the uterus the more likely you are to cause a problem with the scar it, you know, the contractions are you know stronger and longer and for longer periods of time mm -hmm. so one thing to keep in your mind is induction is never an emergency or a necessity <laughs> you know and if, for example, you do have a medical issue, like your blood pressure is going up or whatever, there's a real reason that induction, getting the baby out sooner rather than Could later. Be necessary. Yeah. It is possible, then kind of put this on the back burner. It is, there are studies that show that if you're really careful about how you induce to sort of mimic as much as possible what the body, body does naturally, you can induce without overstressing the star. Mm -hmm. so that's something to say like oh my god you know if my only choice is induction or repeat cesarean i guess i better choose repeat cesarean then i would i would say yes there are ways to do this but you know like the wicked witch said these things must be done carefully right can... all right so that's one thing and then the other thing is there's very strong evidence that if you've had a VBAC, you are much less likely to have a problem with the scar Having a prior vaginal birth, a vaginal birth before the cesarean, doesn't seem to have as much of, this, of an effect on that. But you get a VBAC under your belt, and you are very, very likely to go on having uneventful VBACs if you choose to have more children. And why do you think that 
why do you think that is just because the uterus has progressed it has pushed a baby out it has done all like because that you know i've we get all of that question a lot and in my head like i know there's this you know showing that it's you're more likely but in my head i'm like why why is it exactly why you are more likely to have a v-back if you've had a vaginal birth than if you had a v-back do you know what I mean? or like less likely to have separation yeah. when the uterus is doing the same mechanical functionality like it's contracting and squeezing and pushing a baby out if that were true then it wouldn't make a difference whether you'd had a vaginal birth before you had the cesarean or you had a v-back after you had the cesarean it's really weird so i have no idea i just yeah. know i i'm just the literature I, lady i just yeah. tell you what the research says right and i haven't i don't know either i can't figure that out myself either so like i don't understand why yeah like okay i had i had a vaginal birth and then i had a c-section and then now i don't have the highest risk of you know it's just interesting it's it's really interesting yeah, certainly, if you have had a VBAC, for anybody to say, oh, you know, we just don't do VBACs, and you really need to have a repeat cesarean is really, you know, it's like your best option is to have to plan a repeat VBAC. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is really strongly clear. Yeah. But we're not having providers suggest it. We're still having yeah. providers saying it is in your best option to have a scheduled repeat cesarean or you're not. Uh, and do they say why? I mean, we have, we have people writing all over one. We just don't support it Two, We, um, yeah. <laughs> two, your vaginal birth that you did have, like say if they had a vaginal birth wasn't until 41 weeks. And so, you know, if you have a baby by 39 yeah. weeks, it's fine. You can have that. But after 39 weeks, you can't. And, yeah. That's and what I call the Cinderella V-back. You can have a V-back. If you go into labor before 40 weeks and if your previous baby wasn't too big and if you make progress in labor yeah and but you know the the basic reason is oh we don't do v-backs here because you know we can't handle obstetric emergencies right oh wait let's think about this you're a hospital you have women coming in in labor some of them have high blood pressure mm -hmm. some of them you know fill out the list and you're saying you can't handle an obstetric emergency 24 seven. Yeah, I you know. shouldn't be doing births here. Shouldn't be having babies here. And that, that happens a lot where you've got more rural areas and they're like, oh, we can't support VBAC because we can't handle an emergency cesarean. But it's like, well, if you can't handle an emergency cesarean, well, that's a big concern for anyone going there to give birth because VBAC or not, we know cesare or cesarean, emergent cesareans can be needed for first-time moms, right? And oh, yeah. if they can't handle a VBAC cesarean, then how are they totally able to handle someone who has an, a, an emergency cesarean, just in general? Unfortunately, you know, if this isn't like something that your audience can change, I mean, they're not going to talk that hospital into. So yeah. I, I, I just, it just hurts my heart that mm -hmm. people are put in this, in, in this sort of horns of a dilemma yeah. where they don't have a good option. They have a least worst option. They have, they feel stuck. I, that is the same thing. It hurts my heart that so many people feel so stuck out there. And, and we have mamas that 
travel out of the country or out of the state just to find somewhere, but that option isn't for everyone. right? Right. And, and so it's really hard if you feel stuck and you're not feeling supported in your community. So yeah, that it hurts. It hurts. And that's, you know, that's a whole other podcast. I want to take a quick moment to hear about our partner, Needed, the leading women's health supplement brand recommended by nutritionally trained practitioners. Needed was founded by two incredible mamas who were navigating their fertility journey. They were shocked to realize that 97% of women take prenatal vitamins, yet 95% of us are nutrient deficient. Is that not eye-opening or what? Getting the right prenatal vitamin is super important. So how do we know which one's best? While most perinatal supplements include the bare minimum of the nutrients women and babies need, Needed has all of your needs covered from your prenatal vitamin to pregnancy-specific pre- and probiotic, immune lactation and nausea support, as well as supplements that help us with our protein needs, balancing our blood sugar, and postpartum healing. Needed's complete plan delivers unparalleled nourishment for every phase. Whether you're thinking of conceiving, pregnant, postpartum, or deeper into your mommy years like me, these supplements are amazing. I take the collagen protein every single day and absolutely love it. Learn more about Needed's complete line of perinatal and women's health supplements at thisisneeded.com. Use code VBAC20 for 20% off. That is VBAC20 at thisisneeded.com. But yeah, so let's talk about um, what is uterine separation? What is, I mean, we talk about uterine separation and, you know, I'm going to use the word that a lot of providers use as rupture. And so when we hear this really big word, right, when I picture a water balloon breaking. That's why I don't like that word. Right? That's what we hear. That's what we hear. We hear rupture. And that's what I hear is a water balloon breaking, like popping. And that is really terrifying to hear and to think of when in actuality, it's not usually how that happens, right? Right. Our uterus doesn't just break open and explode. It, it doesn't. And so let's talk about separation uterus. Like, what does that mean? What is that? I mean, and there's multiple types of separation, so, right? Yeah, it's actually, it's been interesting to see because I've actually been involved in this work since the time. 1980s. Yeah. So to watch the evolution when feedback started coming in and then went out again, as they as the researchers grappled with a agreement on a definition of exactly what that meant and because what happens because they find this all the time at repeat cesareans is little windows can open up in the scar it's mm-hmm. not a big deal scars are tough i mean you know, and they don't cause any problems so what they finally ended up with is the scar completely gives way to form an opening in the uterus between the uterus and, and the, the baby and and the abdominal cavity mm-hmm. okay so the and and that would be in combination with symptoms usually heavy bleeding or you know the, the baby being in distress mm-hmm. um, or baby going so high up baby because low. because there's no clinical significance to a window there's no symptoms nobody's hurt nobody you know nobody's at risk but with that, with the, if the scar gives way to the extent that there's heavy bleeding, and there's and 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 in very rare cases the 
baby or part of the baby can actually be in the abdominal cavity. That's a scary situation. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about uterine window. So as she was saying, like, it's kind of where it like thins out. Right. And so we've got mm -hmm. this, this thinning and the crazy thing is there really isn't many symptoms. I mean, you wouldn't there really know, you wouldn't really know if you have a uterine window unless you're opened up, you know, unless we have, unless you have a repeat surgery. Yeah. yeah. And so there's the interesting thing about that is, so one of the things they tried to do, and, and I'm, I hope that none of the doctors <laughs> that they're encountering are doing this. So one of the things they thought was, well, well, hmm, why don't we do an ultrasound scan and see how thin the scar is? And oh, maybe that will help us predict whether the scar will give way. Yeah. And it turns out, and there's absolute agreement on this, you can't use that. It yeah. isn't accurate enough to tell you anything. And what's more, what the, the correlation in that study was, so we, so when she was pregnant, we did this ultrasound and we measured the thickness of the scar. And then when they had their surgery, we looked to see if in fact there was a problem with the scar. And so they found some little windows but that didn't mean they would have had a problem if they'd gone into labor. So that whole idea of, oh, we have some way of predicting when the scar will give way so that we can advise whether it's a good idea to try a VBAC is, you know, all of the studies that have been done of that have said they aren't accurate enough to be used in, in to counsel a person about VBAC. So right. anybody that's yeah. using that one, it's just, it's not scientific. Yeah, I was going to say, yet we get the messages all the time. Hey, my doc said I can't have a VBAC because my uterine, you know, thickness is too thin or it, you know, like we get that reason all of the time being told that they cannot VBAC because of that. So that's, yeah. it's so, it's so disheartening when we've got evidence showing certain things, but we have providers not following evidence-based information. Yes, that's kind of what I, you can always find a reason not to do something you don't want to do. I, I, yes. So that's, that's what I was going to point out too. Sometimes when we have providers saying things that are completely opposite of what evidence even says, or just doesn't support evidence in general, for quote unquote, we've got a message saying that they had a 60% chance of uterine rupture, oh, right? Geez. Yeah, like they said that their their uterine scar would give way 60%. I'm like, yeah, no, that's no. But like, where do we even get that? But like a lot of the time, these providers are, like you said, saying things because they don't want to do things or they've seen things that yes. make them scared. And so they put it under this, they put people under this general umbrella and they're like, oh, you've had a C-section you're under this umbrella and this umbrella is not going to let you have a VBAC. I have a dear friend who was interested. Uh, she was doing work. Uh, she's a, was a, is a marriage and family counselor and she was doing work with PTSD, mm -hmm. uh, childbirth related PTSD. And we were sitting at a conference and I, and there was an obstetrician who was lecturing, who actually started, was talking about a emergency at birth where things went wrong. Mm -hmm. And she, she actually started to tear up. And my friend, my friend had an epiphany. She said, oh, my God, it's not just women who, who develop PTSD. Yeah, it's, these it's, it's prof birth professionals as well. Yes. And, and that's if you've been at 
a crisis birth, even if everything turned out right. But if it was that sort of emergency, oh my God, we might lose this mother or we might lose this baby. That's going to change how you practice because what is the signal effect of PTSD? It's intended to be protective. Your brain says, I never want to be in that situation again. What do I need to do to avoid it? Right. So I have compassion, but that doesn't help your audience who is stuck with these no. people who, who have no idea what's actually driving their decisions. Right. And, and I guess I want to mention that just because sometimes I feel like, and even on this podcast, I feel like we're guilty of saying things that makes it feel like we're painting bad pictures and provide, you know, bad light towards providers. And that's not the goal here in this podcast. It's definitely not what we want to do, but we do know a lot of people have been let down, quote unquote, let down. Or, I mean, here's this failed word, but we've, there are a lot of people out there that have been failed. And it's not because these people have been failed by their care provider. I'll use failed yeah, in that case. That's what <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Like they've been failed by, by the staff or by their care provider or by their location. And, and a lot of the times it's, it's really hard because we don't know what that other person has experienced. Right. Yeah. And we hope that those professionals will work through those and stop putting these general umbrellas over people, but we know that it's probably not going to ever stop happening. No, unfortunately. But I want to move back to, we talked about, we just talked about a case where the research doesn't back up what the doctor says. But Mm -hmm. I want to talk about a couple of cases where, and this is where being more critical of what the research has to say, where the research does on the surface back doctors up. And that would be, so now let's get into some of the categories for um, induction. And and one big one is we don't want you to get past 40 weeks because we know that with longer pregnancy duration, there's more chance for scar rupture. So that sounds good. And it's actually in the research where you look at, you know, but here's the catch. Underneath that, is that what happens at 40 or 41 weeks? They induce labor. And there is research that shows that the reason that you get more is that all of the, the scar ruptures were in induced labors. So they left these, you know, we know that induction increases the risk of scar rupture. Right. So it creates the illusion that it's pregnancy duration. Yeah. It's not. Too dangerous it's pregnancy to management. Mm-hmm. Okay. The other one where that happens, and it's actually in the research, is women who are expecting a big baby. Yeah. Or they think the baby is big. Now, suspected. first of all. Yeah, suspected big baby. First of all, if, if, if your doctor says, oh, you know, this baby's going to be on the big side. You know, we did the ultrasound. I've been feeling your belly. There's, uh, you might as well flip a coin because there's a 50-50 chance that that is incorrect and your baby isn't going to be on the big side. Mm-hmm. So number one, they may be anxious about something that isn't even true. Yeah. You know, It's um, so true. But the second thing is, then what happens next? Let's induce before the baby gets bigger. So again, you find an association between VBAC labors with bigger babies and an increased risk of scar rupture. 
Mm -hmm. But that's not the root cause. The root causes those laboring women that were induced. So that is something to take into account when you hear those things. And again, I've got detailed, I've got the numbers because I think the reason I keep coming back to the importance of the blog post is one of the things that I think is less than helpful is vagueness. It's like, well, there's a chance. Well, the yeah. first question I'd have is how big? So I wanted to as much as possible give people the numbers so that, you know, they can do what feels right for them, but to also know how those numbers are distorted by management. The VBAC rate itself is distorted by management because VBAC studies outside of the hospital from coming from home births and birth centers, the VBAC rate in women who had not had any prior, in other words, the first birth was the cesarean, this is the second delivery. The VBAC rate was like 81%. None of the hospital-based studies, I think, the, you know, they, they range up to the sort of the low 70%, but the hospital studies don't get up that high. And here's the important thing. I mean, if it's at all possible to find a care provider who's really comfortable with feedback and knows how to manage them, because where do you see the bad outcomes? To a huge extent, they're in labors that were induced or labors, uh, excuse me, um, were yeah, labors that were, there were labors in which the, the, the scar, there was a problem with the scar, which is much more likely if they were induced or augmented, or they just like, she wasn't given enough time. And then she went to C-section and, you know, because the complications happen at C-sections. So the, the more you are able to have a birth that is, you know, proceeds at its own pace with no stimulation and there's a spontaneous vaginal birth, you know, give birth by your own efforts. That's when it's minuscule in terms of, of having complications. Right. That's what's so, it's so hard because yes, we talked about this earlier, like, Oh, we've got hypertension or, Oh, we've got this thing and we've got these options. Do we induce, do we have a, a have a, a C-section, you know? And, it is still very possible to to have a VBAC with an induction. We're just talking about uterine giveaway and and the chances, right? And so you increase your chances by choosing to be induced. That doesn't guarantee you're going to do have that happen or anything, but you have to know walking into it, okay, I have this, this, and this, and I am going to choose to induce. Just you have to know the risk that you are taking, right? Like we have to yeah. like weigh out the risks and say, okay, I know it increases a little bit. I'm comfortable taking that risk or I'm not comfortable taking that risk. Right. Or how can I minimize my risk? Because, you know, it still is possible. I mean, I would, you have to do it diplomatically, but if you have a care provider who's willing to be flexible, you know, mm -hmm. is like, yeah, I'm not sure about this one, but, but you're able to have that conversation where you feel like they can hear you. And, and you're going to be respectful and hear them, mm -hmm. um, then I think there's a lot that can be done. You can say no or not yet. Yep. And we we actually just made a blog, or uh, not a blog post, a post on Instagram and Facebook about that saying like, I appreciate the time that we just took. I'm going to choose to wait. 
or right. thank you so thing, much for that, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. The other thing I would suggest in, if you're in a situation where you're saying no, is to have a discussion around which new information would change your mind. Because that, again, creates that space with, oh, you know, I'm, I, I don't have one of these patients that's just being difficult. But to say like, so to, to, to talk about what, you know, if my blood pressure goes up, I don't know what it might be, but to have a conversation about under what circumstances might you consider changing your mind. Right. Yeah. It's powerful. Conversation and information is powerful. And so I always encourage someone to ask questions, to get the research. Like, you know, if we have a provider saying you have a 60% chance of uterine giveaway, uterine scar giveaway, let's talk about that. Wow, that seems really high. Is there any way you can provide me with that information so I can study that and see what's comfortable for me? Right? Like, and then you'll look at you'll look at it and like, oh, there's not statistics showing that I have that. Okay. And then you might make a different choice. But if we just hear that number, we automate if we don't ask any question, we might automatically say, that seems really scary. I'm not even gonna go there. Right? We have these these myths, we have these these numbers. And, and if we don't ask for information, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Well, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, I've got the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists practice bulletin. Yes. I wonder if there's any way, I mean, like summary of recommendations and conclusions mm -hmm. backed by level A evidence, good and consistent scientific evidence. The first one on the list is most women with one previous cesarean delivery with a low transverse incision are candidates for and should be counseled about and offered. And offered. Yes. Which I, you know, my eye goes down and I want to talk about women who've had two prior cesareans. I know we yeah, wanted to talk about that. We do want to talk about that. Yes. And I will say that they're not enthusiastic about it, but nonetheless, this is under level B evidence, which is limited or inconsistent scientific evidence. And what it says is, given the overall data, it is reasonable to consider women with two previous low transverse cesarean deliveries to be candidates for TOLAC mm -hmm. and to counsel them based on the combination of other factors that if, well, you know, they have all of these, v these VBAC prediction Mm -hmm. um, which I'm just going to be blunt. They're crap because they're evaluating the wrong thing. Yeah. What they should be evaluating is the doctor's propensity to, to care for feedback and to, and, and to, uh, and, and their, and their confidence in, in feedback mm -hmm. because it's, you know, then you'd get the numbers that would really correlate with whether labors would end in feedback or they wouldn't. Right. I know. And, and then just going one step further, uh, vaginal birth after two cesareans, then we've got people talking about vaginal birth after three or more. Right. And there's not yeah. the evidence in there because we're not doing them very often. The evidence is not there for three. It is yeah. there for two. two. Although again, yeah. you, you want to be, you can get very low like again, the equivalent of, of sort of the average in it, there's some Israeli studies where there's a, a very large population of women there who, who have large families. So you do get people with two cesareans. 
but the but the thing there is they they need to be managed carefully. And in, in in one case, it was like we don't do inductions other than by rupturing membranes in someone whose cervix is ready to go. So there were ways to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but what I wanted to say is now here's a case where you have to look at the other side, which is there are studies that show there there are consequences because as you accumulate uterine scars the complications in subsequent pregnancies goes up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you get to two prior cesareans and they there there's studies that looked at the branch in the road, like you had two prior cesareans, did you plan a VBAC or did you plan a repeat cesarean? And guess what? The severe complication rates were identical. It was an identical rate of hysterectomies. There was the same rate where of, of, of perinatal mortality. So it's not like, oh, I'll just choose that safe third cesarean. Mm -hmm. So there are increased risks, but there are also increased risks to taking another cesarean on board. And then to add to that future pregnancies, right? So yeah. each cesarean that we have, we have also risks in future pregnancies that is not discussed about when we're talking about when we're be when we're counseling in this medical world from what we're finding right is when we're being counseled for vbac we're being counseled for the risks of uterine separation and and toll or you know the vbac issues but we're not talked to about you know the blood loss or the risk of history you know we're not talking about those things or or chronic okay, pain or you chronic know, pain or dense adhesions or you know placenta accreta like we don't yeah. we don't talk about these issues or even you know future deeper issues we're not talking about and that is where i think one of the places we're going wrong in this medical world is we're not truly counseling on all sides of things to really give people the opportunity to make that really informed decision we're mm -hmm. kind of just prefacing over here but like oh but we could schedule your your baby's birthday and get your hair done the day before and look all good because you know exactly when your baby's coming you know it's just we're not we're not counseling and like you said there are issues and there are risks so with with vbac after two c-sections through your education um you know a college saying like yeah they're not like saying like yeah go for it for sure for sure but they're saying it should be reasonable so, so through your uterine scar separation research, do you feel like, I mean, is it substantially larger? Is it, I mean, I know there's going to be numbers in the blog and we talk about it in our course and all the things, but let's talk about like, is it like, okay, you have a 0.4, you know, ish percent to, to what, to 10% if you'd had two to 1%, you know, um, and we've got people being told things all over the place. And so I guess, my question is, is through your research, VBAC after two cesareans, um, we're going to specifically talk about just two cesareans here. Is that increase truly that much higher? Like, I mean, I, I know the answer, but let's really talk about it. Is it really that much higher or is it pretty low statistically? Well, I actually turned to that page in, in the blog post and I had a couple of different studies and there was an increase in both studies. It was quite small. And the difference in the studies, I really think had to do with the fact that in one of the studies, that was the one where they, they would only allow a rupture of membranes 
as, as a means of induction. So in one case, it went from three per thousand with plan V back after one cesarean to six per thousand with plan V back after two cesareans. And then the other one, it went from seven per thousand to 16 per thousand. But that's still a 98% chance of not having a problem with your scar. Right. The, the thing is, there is a consciousness that if you're planning a large family, that maybe uh, that that I think a lot of care providers, you know, they'll say, well, if you're only planning on having two children, it really is not that big a deal to have another cesarean. But the thing with that is, I think it's really important to understand that you may plan to have to complete your family with two children. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what's going to happen. It's true. That is I so mean, true. So I think unless you're planning on you or your intimate partner or you know, planning on doing something permanent about your fertility, you have to consider the fact that you may choose to have an, another baby or you may find yourself pregnant and decide you're having another baby. Right. So I think you always have to take that possibility into consideration when you're making that first decision. And personally, and this is totally my opinion and my judgment, you know, no pressure here. I think the best thing you can do is get off the VBAC, you know, get off the cesarean track if you can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it really is. There's, there's proof in the pudding, right? That a vaginal birth is the more ideal route in the long run. Yeah. Overall. So, so I guess. As we're wrapping up here, let's talk a little bit about like, well, how do you decide? How, how, well, how do we decide? I know that I wanted to get to something because we talked about this. I wanted to get to the epidural Epidurals. Yeah. Yes, let's please. talk about that too. Yeah. Um, what you were saying is you're hearing both sides. One mm -hmm. is that you can't have an epidural and the other is. You have that to. You have to have an epidural. Literally, they say you have to have an epidural in order to be back. Or some of them are like, "Well, yeah, you can be back. Just know." And it's, I feel like it's used as like this fearful thing, like just know you can't have a v or you can't have an epidural, so you're going to have okay. to go and medicate it. You know. Well, let's take care of that one that you you can't have an epidural first because that's the easy one. Okay. Again, yeah. go, I go back to ACOG. Level A evidence, epidural analgesia for labor may be used as part of a TOLAC. I mean, I was jaw-droppingly shocked because it's at least two decades since that myth about, oh, we can't give you an epidural because then we won't know when the scar And we won't know if there's separation. Away. Yeah, mm -hmm. that is, that is, so that is totally bogus. But let's get to the, you have to have an epidural. The thing about that is an epidural interferes. Well, there are two problems, I think, with having an epidural. First of all, the idea there is in case there's an emergency, we can deal with it faster. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing is, an epidural is problematic in a couple of ways. One is one of the more common side effects of an epidural is there's a drop in the mother's blood baby's pressure and the baby's heart rate. And yep. guess what is the most, it's, it's not, you know, the best predictor that the, the scar has one. given, the number mm -hmm. one predictor that the scar has given way. And again, in most of those cases, it hasn't, but nonetheless, it's a better predictor than pain is Fetal the baby's heart rate. Mm -hmm. So you are adding number one, something that will 
possibly provoke concern and a cesarean you don't need. Okay. But the other thing is that it interferes with mobility. And I think the number one reason, I mean, you want everything in your favor in terms of, you know, making good progress and an epidural interferes with that. Mm -hmm. Plus you then have the problem of epidural fever because obviously they would want to give you that epidural early so that you would have it maybe for hours. And then you're, you know, you'd start to develop a fever and they'd, and they'd be like, mm, it's time to get the baby out. So an epidural actually decreases your chances for a feedback. But what about the emergency piece? Well, the thing is, if you have a, um, a sterile water lock, you know, where you've got the business end of an IV, mm -hmm. the needle is there, but there's, it's not hooked up to anything. So there's no mean, problem. Are you talking about the just-in-case epidurals? Yeah, I'm talking about you. We, we want you to have an epidural because of the emergency possibility. Like, we'll already have you anesthetized. Okay. Yeah. So we, so we've, we first talked about, we've given you a procedure that, that may lead to an unnecessary cesarean and may decrease your probability of, of progressing to a vaginal birth. So you know, that's mm -hmm. already like, um, really? You want to do that to me? Why? Right, right. And the answer is, well, in case there's an emergency. But the thing is that, first of all, you can do a spinal a lot faster than an epidural. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it is perfectly possible to get you numb within a very short period of time, you know, sufficient to do the cesarean surgery. So that's, it's just, it's, it's really kind of bogus. Yeah. Okay? Well, and I want to talk about too, because if it is a true serious, serious surgery, like we've got minutes, if that, we're going to usually be put under general anesthesia. Well, that's a possibility too. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing. But the other thing is, I, I also want to move into that gray zone of, well, I just talked about the drawbacks of having an epidural, but I mm -hmm. imagine there's a fair number of members of your audience out there who are thinking, I'd really like to have an epidural. Yep. And for some of them, depending on what their first labor was like, it may even be like, I can only contemplate feedback if I also contemplate having an epidural. And for those, so <laughs> this is where my new book comes in. My new book is, is the full title is Labor Pain. What's your best strategy? Get the data, make a plan, take charge of your birth. And in that book, I give all the evidence about pros and cons of all the different other methods of all the methods of sort of from do it yourself, comfort measures to epidurals. And then the last chapter kind of is, again, the fork in the road. It's like, you would like to avoid an epidural, and here's all the ways of doing that. And then you would like to plan an epidural. You, you want to make an epidural plan A, and then here are all the ways of maximizing your chances of having one that goes smoothly. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think it's to go into all the details here on the show, but if, if anybody is interested in finding out more about the pros and cons of their pain coping options, including epidurals and how to plan to avoid an epidural as plan A or the reverse, I, I think my book could be very helpful. That is amazing. And we're going to have, just to let you guys know, we're going to have so many things in the show notes here. So we're going to have, of course, the blog with all the numbers and going deeper into what we're talking about today. We're going to have a link with all of her books, because I think it's important to know, you know things in you, all of them. 
I mean, actually, I, I would actually stop you because I think Thinking Woman's Guide was a great book. It was published in 1999. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's a little older, a little dated. Yeah, and optimal care. It was really intended for birth professionals if we have and even we that was 2012 yeah we have a lot of birth professionals listening so um, i really yeah. want to preface the new book which you know just it's it's been out less than a year so it's really current mm -hmm. yeah we're gonna we're definitely going to have that that like number one and i actually want i haven't read it yet so i'm gonna read it myself because i think it's important to no, I mean, I know you and I, I trust you, but I like want to know even more like so I can keep referring it out and also learn by reading it myself. Yeah, I think you'll get some ideas that, you know, for your classes, I think you mm -hmm. will. Well, yeah, for my clients and keep referring them out because it really, I mean, you guys, the more information you have, the better. The, the more knowledge that you have under your belt as you are entering into these births, it's going to help you along the way. It's going to help you feel more prepared, more educated, and confident, right? Hensi, right. like, don't you feel like confidence is something that no matter VBAC or not, like just in birth in general, we need confidence. That's kind of why the name of my new series, I'm working on a book on induction, is oh. Take Charge of Your Birth. You yep. can't take control of your birth because you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, life happens, but you can take charge in terms of having the information, having thought through what, what is really important to you. Mm -hmm. And and I think that is, we actually, there's actually research on this. Feeling in charge is the key component in having a positive experience. It, I mean, if you felt helpless, if you felt like you couldn't, you didn't have any say in what was going on and you were scared and you didn't feel supported, you can have a lovely, uneventful vaginal birth and be traumatized. If you were in charge, you were a full participant in all of the decisions, you felt like your options were presented, you made the best choices you could, the people around you were encouraging and supportive of what you were trying, you could have a very difficult experience in terms of it, what actually happened, and it would still be a positive experience. You might, mm -hmm. Which is not to say, I mean, you know, Trauma is a very personal experience. It's what you feel in the moment. There, there's no one can say for you, you shouldn't have been traumatized by that birth because it wasn't traumatic enough. <laughs> you know, it's subjective. Right. But on right. the whole, feeling like you are in charge is powerful. It's really powerful. And there's actual stats behind that. And I mean, like you said, like, even if it doesn't go the way, so like, my second birth didn't go the way I desired. And I still to this day believe that I didn't, I wasn't allowed enough time or wasn't given mm -hmm. enough resources that I deserved. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, once the decision was made to have a second cesarean, a repeat cesarean, uh, there were a lot of things like that I communicated. And I don't know, I guess was able to kind of take yeah like i took charge in this moment of like okay if this is how it's going to go this is what i need and want and my providers were really receptive to that and yep. my second cesarean although still not desired you know at all or even feel that it was necessary i actually have a very different viewpoint on it because i was 
actively involved in that birth, mm-hmm. in the decisions that were being made. Um, again, even though I didn't feel that the decision that I made for the repeat cesarean was really warranted, it's a decision I made and I I accept that, right? But the uh, decision, the other decisions along the way, I literally can look back at that birth and actually say it was healing, which mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, wait, what? You're saying that you didn't want your second C-section, but it was healing? And I can say, yeah, absolutely. It was healing because I was being able to really participate in this birth in a different way, right? And I just think that's so powerful because I could have looked back with a lot of anger and hate and probably could have beat myself up even more, right? But like, because I viewed that as a positive healing experience, and I think that's what I needed to end my C-section journey with. I needed that birth to say, okay, this is a better experience. This is, I'm ending the C-section journey now, V back from here on out, but I needed this experience to have a different view on the C-section experience in a whole. I think I heard something else, which I think is, is key. And, and you correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like when you agreed to the second cesarean, mm-hmm. you were making the best decision that you could at that time. You still had a decision. I, it sounds like you weren't sort of bullied into the repeat cesarean. It was just like there was a discussion and you felt like, yeah, I think I'll go along with the repeat. And I think that that's key too, is when you do make a decision and it is your decision and you can own it, I think that helps too, because later you can say, you know, if I were in that same spot again, I might do something different. I've learned something from that, but that's very different. You know, but, but you know what? That was also what made sense to me at the time. And now I can let go of it. Yeah, you know, when I got my op reports for my, when I was going to interview all the providers for my VBAC after two cesarean baby, which I wasn't even pregnant, but I started interviewing before, I was reviewing my op reports. And as I was reading them, I did kind of get a little triggered and I got a little angry. And my husband looked at me as I had a tear rolling down my face saying, these were unnecessary. He said, babe, we made the best choice we knew in the moment mm-hmm. with the information that was given to us in the moment. Mm-hmm. And he said, do not ever shame yourself for making these choices because you were not given the information and you were not in a space mentally where you could be in that right you know, oh, the statistics say, right? Which is one of the reasons why I think doulas are so important because they are able to help remind you of those things. But I wasn't in a space where I could like go through my my journal of information and say, oh, but this, this, I was given these facts, this information, and I made a choice based off of the information that I was given. And I can never shame myself for that. And when he said that, I was like, you know what? You're right. I would go back and do things differently if I were to look back, right? Like if I were there again, I probably would have made different choices or I would have done different things, but I'm loving, I'm loving the journey that those experiences have that has given. Okay. I'm loving the journey that those experience brought me to. Does that make sense? Yes. Like the, the, this journey that I'm on right now, I probably wouldn't be on 
if I didn't have those experiences. I wouldn't be with all of you here today talking about feedback and repeat cesarean and what the evidence shows and sharing these absolutely amazing stories and bringing on these incredible professionals without those experiences. And so, yeah, I didn't have, I had two births that I didn't desire the outcome of a cesarean, but I will forever and ever be grateful for those experiences. And I will add that I wouldn't be who I was here today if I hadn't had a emotionally very negative experience. I talk about that in the preface as to why, who I am today and why I wrote the book and the difference between my first book and how I experienced my second, uh, my, between my first birth and uh, my, my, my second, well, the first birth, the first one I was delivered, the second one I gave birth, that, that in a nutshell uh, is the difference between the two. And that started me on my journey. I wanted other, yeah. other women and birthing people to know that the choices that they made were crucial mm-hmm. to how they were going to end up feeling about themselves, their partners, their babies, their everything, that it was not trivial and that they, and, and, and making my life's work, looking at the research, because that's, you know, my skill. You do, <laughs> um, yes. And so that they would have that information, information that I didn't have until I started reading stuff after my first birth right. delivery. Yeah. And you know, that's how a lot of us doulas and birth professionals start is based off of an experience that we had that we were like, we want to help people have a different experience. We want to empower people. Right. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you're in the world. It sounds like you are doing a great service for a lot of people out there. Oh, well, thank you so much. And likewise, I mean, you are incredible. All your blogs are amazing. I mean, seriously, people could spend hours and hours and hours on your blogs, just picking apart the information and the stats and putting putting these large studies into English. Because honestly, that's one of the hardest things about studies is you go through and you're like, I don't even know what this means. Like, can I just get like a clear conclusion? You know, but your your blogs really they they make sense. They're English to me. And I know they will be for so many of our followers as well. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Seriously, I I am so, so grateful. And if you guys um, want to go follow Hensi, like I said, we're going to have all the links for all the things in the show notes, but you can also go on Instagram and Facebook at Take Charge of Your Birth. Is that correct, Hensi? Yes, that is correct. Yes, or and actually, you can also. Um, I think there are places on the the social media, but if you go to hensigoer.com, you can also sign up for my newsletter. I have yes. a monthly newsletter. That's what I was just going to say is hensigoer.com, and like I said, we'll have this in the show notes. Go in there, sign up for the newsletter, sign up for all the amazing things that she's putting out because, it, I mean, you really are. You are a wealth of knowledge and it's really so fun. And I'm so honored that you took the time today to be with us. Well, it's been my pleasure to be here. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, the worldwide database for VBAC doulas and more, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.